the technology really is neutral. It's really the question of how we use that technology. Do we use the technology to only service the, the high-end side of the market in ways that is exclusive? Or do we take that technology and think about things like inclusive banking, inclusive education, and in, in many ways developing an economy that's more inclusive and accessible to individuals with low adoption rates around the technology itself? We are fast approaching an era of cashless societies, autonomous cars, smart buildings, and renewable energy. We are already talking to our appliances and taking advice from our phones. Technology is making our lives easier and services more accessible. I am Lenya Rosello, and in this Investec Focus Radio podcast, we explore the fourth industrial revolution and how it's unfolding on the African continent. From the Internet of Things to robotics, virtual reality, and artificial intelligence. The fourth industrial revolution is characterized by a fusion of technologies that is blurring the lines between our physical, digital, and biological worlds. Its advent heralds both great promise, but also potential peril. Can exponential technology serve the broader society rather than the elite few? Can it stimulate inclusive economies? Will it create greater access to financial services or future-focused education? In the heart of Mpumalanga, a stone's throw from South Africa's world-famous Kruger National Park, is Africa's first digital learning campus for rural communities. Here, young learners, fresh out of their classrooms and still dressed in their school uniforms, spend their afternoons learning computer skills, coding and mathematics on their iPads. It's a far cry from the kind of primary school education most kids in this area receive. And it might be the best hope for rural communities like these to forge globally competitive leaders. Here's Dave Varty, environmentalist, entrepreneur, and chairman of the education NGO behind the Digital Learning Center, the Good Work Foundation. A young child a few years ago believed they maybe could be a policeman or a nurse or a teacher. That was almost the limit to their horizon until you put the internet and the iPad in front of them or as we are doing, you ask them to code or fly a drone or build a robot with their friends in in San Francisco. At ground root level, it means that we can bring learning and education via the digital world internet to these young minds. Once you do that, you can then begin to introduce that young person down channels, channels of different industries. There's no limitation. But for every learner, be they in this digital school, Coding at a private school in Johannesburg or learning to fly a drone in Cape Town, there are thousands of others without the same opportunities, some even with barely any access to education. As we hurtle towards a world of work that requires a more technically literate workforce, developed countries are spending billions of dollars on broad technology-focused education programs designed to produce a next-generation workforce. But what of less developed nations? Can an African continent still grappling with the first three industrial revolutions somehow leapfrog into a new digital era? Or will exponential technologies further widen the chasm between the first world and the developing world? Speaking at the Institute of Security Studies seminar on Africa's fourth industrial revolution, panelist Marius Wosthuizen 
from the Gordon Institute of Business Science says the fourth industrial revolution can change the status quo. I think that you know what the first, second and third industrial revolution uh, provided us at, at a societal level was the foundation for modernization. You know, if you have electricity and running water and mechanization, the productivity gains and the health gains that come from that mean that human beings are fundamentally better off. If we imagine that we can have the fourth industrial revolution without those fundamentals, we'll create a tech dystopia where people have access to apps from the US and China, but they don't have running water that's clean and healthy for them to use. And so in the context of Africa, we have to think not in a sequential way, but in an integrated way. And what's excited about that is we can use the fourth industrial revolution to bring clean water, renewable, cheap energy in a circular economy to individuals that don't have those services and in the process not only unlock value for the community but unlock value for the entrepreneurs and the businesses that bring those solutions to those communities. Has the time not arrived to build a new smart city founded on the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution? When South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, presented a vision of a new smart city rising from the soil, complete with intelligent skyscrapers, next-generation schools and universities, and state-of-the-art hospitals and factories, was he simply spinning an impossible dream? Should we not rather be focusing on getting the basics right? In a country that is beset with massive problems in areas like water and sanitation, electricity provision and basic education, or was the president simply acknowledging that continuing to approach challenges of urban planning with an industrial era mindset will result in a new crisis? The change in our spaces and the opportunities big cities present are resulting in mass urbanization with 71% of South Africans said to be living in urban areas by 2030. If these new city dwellers are not getting any value, urbanization could fuel a hotbed of discontent and all the socio-economic problems that come with it. Here's Marius Oosthuizen again. So if we look at the industrialization process from the first to the fourth, this phenomena of human beings moving from a rural setting to an urban setting has been one of the, what we would call a structural feature of that process. And it's, a, it's sort of a normal element of human modernization. What we're seeing with the fourth industrial revolution is the possibility of taking a much more sophisticated view of what a city is. So instead of thinking of a city just of a bunch of people with very long supply chains from agriculture and mining and manufacturing providing services into the city from outside with the fourth industrial revolution we can think of the city as an engine for service uh, development an engine for manufacturing an engine for for smart delivery of value to those living in that city and so the fourth industrial revolution allows us to think of the city as a hub with very high levels of efficiency so that's an advantage the disadvantage, of course, if we give the rate of urbanization and the, the rate of, of births with young, a young population, is that unless we unlock the, if we don't unlock the value in that urban environment, what we then have is a young urban youth bulge that gets highly frustrated, antagonistic towards their environment, and that leads to political destabilization. And so we have to make the socioeconomics work before the, the politics of urbanization begin to undermine the system. So how can African leaders use technology to create opportunities for rural communities and implement policies that stimulate growth and attract investment? Dr. Martin Davies, Managing Director of Emerging Markets in Africa at Deloitte, says the trick lies in the creation of an enabling environment. 
its competitiveness is comes about through the uh, linkages and connectivity within a deeper ecosystem that talks to governance issues, political enabling issues, infrastructure issues, education, intellectual property, all of the above combined. So how do, how do, how do it's not so much a country uh, story, it is a city story increasingly. How do cities become um, more, more, more competitive by creating these thriving ecosystems, if you will? Uh, we've seen the rise of cities in many respects uh, where the business model is managing flows, flows of trade, flows of capital, flows of intellectual property. We spoke about things like so Singapore, Dubai, London, New York, amongst many others. And it's how, ultimately how that, that, that economic um, agility that uh, at a subnational level is able to, to, to result in, in deep development of that specific urban node, if you will, of course, with a, with a uh, scaling effect to an extent beyond the, beyond the centre. The traditional narrative has always been that the key to accelerating development is attractive foreign direct investment, that the foreign dollar will somehow bring opportunities for new business, innovation and job creation. Davies disagrees. Getting, getting FDI is by no means a measure of success. Um, you know, the uh, capital is not terribly important. And in recent years, post-quantitative easing, capital is actually free. If you're in Japan, if you're in the United States, if in Western Europe, money is actually free. Interest rates are practically zero. So it's not a capital issue. And as Klaus Schwab from World Economic Forum said, it's not about capitalism as it is about talentism. And winning countries, winning organizations are those that will be able to attract the most talent. That applies, that certainly applies to countries. This is the development story that has under, underpinned, underwritten the success of many economies in the last 20, 30, 40 years, particularly Asia. It is not the capital per se that determines success. It's the intellectual property that accompanies it and how that IP, i.e. talent, people are embedded in the domestic economy and that IP is then diffused throughout into broader society and retained. That is the, uh, the secret source of developmental success. So if Davies is right, then what we need is the political will and leadership to grow our people and nurture our human talent. We've seen this playing out in countries like Rwanda. Following a devastating genocide in the 1990s, Rwanda is now one of Africa's fastest growing economies with decreasing levels of unemployment, good governance and policies prioritizing health and education. President Paul Kahame, Forbes magazine's 2018 African of the Year, has prioritized technology and entrepreneurship in his policies, many of which hark back to those adopted decades ago by Singapore. The result? Rwanda is now a hotbed for investment, attracting foreign talent and fostering innovation. Today, drones deliver medicine to rural communities. Smart solar kiosks bring digital connectivity to the people. New software is cutting out the middlemen in the agricultural sector. And Volkswagen, the German auto giant, is planning a fleet of electric taxis in Kigali. Davis talks about the lessons the rest of Africa can learn from Rwanda. Now, Rwanda's become a, you know, it's, it's, it's first, it's, a, it's, a, it's an economic success. It's a getting the economic success story. 
based on an experiment almost of creating a nation. A nation, a coherent nation, is underpinning the economic progression. At the same time, you have a very uh, economically, commercially minded state that is in very much attracting of foreign investment, foreign companies, IP and people. The first country in, in Africa to adopt a visa-free um, visa access going into the country, no matter who you are, where you come from. That's certainly foresightful. And it's a country that increasingly is adopting, is, uh, sees itself as a, an enabling platform for technologies to be a testbed, if you will, which can use Rwanda as a testbed and then scale beyond that. Almost like a mini Singapore, a mini Israel, if you will, but one where the state fully understands business and seeks to integrate business, in this case very innovative business, into its own developmental model and trajectory. But the flip side of all of this opportunity is fear. For millions of technologically marginalized Africans, life is only getting harder as large-scale disruption and automation threatens industrial era jobs. Can we realistically hope that the negative impact of this disruption will be mitigated by new work opportunities created by the fourth industrial revolution? Ambassador of the Republic of Korea to South Africa, Dr. Yong Dai Park, thinks we can. Reflecting on South Korea's economic success in recent decades, Park says the country had no choice but to embrace the fourth industrial revolution by focusing on the development of its most valuable asset. I think um, we learned the lesson that uh, crisis can be opportunity because we went through such a you know, big crisis uh, after independence and you know, Korean War and we are not blessed with the natural resources that many different countries enjoy and we had only uh, human resources to rely on. So it was either for our nation to just uh, give up in despair or really uh, be ambitious and try to overcome uh, the difficulties. I think uh, our country uh, made a successful case of in overcoming uh, the difficulties. And the only thing we really resorted to was human capital because uh, it was not easy to get uh, foreign investments in terms of uh, uh, foreign capitals. And that's why uh, we were able to build on a strong uh, empowerment of the people initiative led by government. And at that time, uh, we were lucky that the people were supporting the government and willing to uh, give a uh, benefit of doubt because uh, there's no other way that we could develop. And in the process, through the success of hard work and, and, and positive government leadership, we were able to save uh, capital for in investment, which we also put uh, back into our industries. And uh, education was uh, crucial in the process. So the emphasis we placed on education was not necessarily in academic education. It was about scaling, you know, technical education, and that was key. And once uh, our level of income grew, uh, uh, democratization happened. And uh, there was strong governance to oversee our economy, and we invested heavily in R&D, technology. So naturally, the success of the basics, like empowerment of people, uh, making them you know, productive, uh, having confidence in themselves led to uh, basic industries, light industries, and then was able to build heavy industry and then move to uh, technology, R&D. So we invested from the early stages 
maybe it could be said it's uh, 1980s already. Uh, we are focusing heavily on advanced technology, and that really helped our country to become a digital you know, powerhouse in the 90s. In resource-rich Africa, there's a need for a mindset change before we can embrace the fourth industrial revolution, says Park. So having lived in Africa for many years, uh, having come here when I was a teenager in the 70s, and have seen the transformation our country has uh, gone through and the evolution in Africa, I came to the conclusion that development is not about uh, resources or means or even you know, technology. It's all about management. And where just management come from is the mindset of all the individuals, including the leaders and the people. And Korea provides a very strong case for that. Because as I mentioned to you, uh, we, were, we were deficient in resources. Uh, we don't have uh, you know, oil. And uh, about 75% of our land is mountainous land. So it was really human capital that made a difference, and social capital, people working together as a community. So I just wanted to make that point because uh, in many cases in Africa, people try to, there's tendencies, people thinking that wealth can be created by distribution, when it's actually you know, creation, production of wealth. So the, I think the focus has been misplaced. So that's the important point that I want to make in the book and also the role of the state. So what is the role of the state in all of this? In South Africa, we've witnessed firsthand how poor governance, corruption and policy uncertainty can hobble growth and development. Does the analogy then also hold that good governance can create an environment conducive to rapid technological and economic development? Uh, state doesn't have to be you know, interventionist in you know, uh, markets. Rather, it can be facilitators that provide uh, the settings uh, for the private sector to fully uh, you know, uh, engage itself in economics as a facilitator and as a service provider. And I also talk about the importance of the institution nation building because in many African countries still, although they have been independent for many decades, mostly over you know, 50 years, but still uh, the, the nation building has not been completed in many instances because there's a, a disparity in the region among you know, the people in the group. And also what I think is important is the development-mindedness of the people. So back to the question we asked at the outset. Can Africa leapfrog the previous industrial revolutions and move straight into this fourth industrial revolution? Notwithstanding the work that still needs to be done, Park believes this is possible. Definitely, in terms of technology, uh, leapfrogging is very much possible and it is already happening. As you see in many cases, especially in uh, Eastern Africa, uh, people are using um, you know, internet banking, mobile bank system, and uh, solar energies, for example, because of the lack of you know, gridlocks, the hard infrastructure. So technology can be readily adapted and applied. But the question of whether you can uh, you know, uh, 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 leap the industrial you know, level, uh, I think you have to take it step by step. You cannot suddenly come from uh, you know, uh, agricultural economy to high-tech economy. You have to go through um, industrial phase and the high service economy phase and to, uh, you know, innovative phase. The fourth industrial revolution is here. And with it, the opportunity to dramatically improve the fortunes of countries like South Africa. 
But unless we respond with vigor and urgency, embracing new technologies in an inclusive, human-centric way, we risk falling further behind. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate us and subscribe to Investec's audio programs wherever you get your podcasts. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.